This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, everybody, and uh, and and thanks for joining us to discuss John Patrick Leary's new book, Keywords for Capitalism. Knew you were repulsed by a word, <laughs> but, but didn't know why and what accounted for that repulsion. This is the place for you to be, because, because over the course of two books, John's previous book, Keywords for... Uh, the, 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 the titles are quite similar, and I'm going to talk about the, 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 the difference between the two. Keywords, the, the new language of capitalism, which came out a few years ago, and, and this book, Keywords for Capitalism. Um, John has really become... Uh, um, the Raymond Williams of our time, uh, uh, somebody has 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 explored the, the the language of power and dominance and the way that words are used to evade and lead. But 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 what's particularly important about this book, um, keywords for capitalism, is that it does more than just shot the evasions. Keywords for a new capitalism. His earlier book was was a book that you know looked at the language of neoliberalism and, and the language of HR. I mean, I, you know, I think I met I probably John and I come out at NYU together, and, and I think we probably met and at least became friends during uh, I guess the 2006 strike, TA strike was that 2006 2005. Mm-hmm. Something like that, and um, you know, and and, and perhaps no institution in in, uh, in in U.S. society other than every other institution has the has the ability to to, to bastardize language like the university to make it mean one thing when it means something else you know, to, to to use you know to to, to use the kind of soft language. Language in the new of the new of the new economy to to issue veil threats against graduate students and and John's uh, you know it's a lesson it's like lexicon it's lesson lexography in the lexicon of evasion and John's first book really got at the the um the the ways in which neoliberalism and human uh, relations. Uh, um, kind of watered down our language, you know, for very real material reasons. Um, and we all know the way the, the rise of uh, talking about labor as human capital, words like synergy. This book is a little different, though, and it's and and in some ways it's much more important. Um, and uh, and um, it's a book that I think. Particularly in this moment where language is so fraught and so explosive, and it seems that so much of our 
uh, political struggles take place over the terrain of meaning of words uh, on platforms that are nothing but words. This is a book that I think has the potential. I mean, it's a it's a small it's a it's not a big book. It's a book. It's a book for our times in the sense that it's 140 word pages, like you know, kind of like 140 characters. But um, but it it um it it seeks to, in my reading, uh, to build solidarity to you to 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 return to the left and ability to use language to come together, and and um and 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 uh, and the way John does that is is uh. Is a very um, is is in a very is a very um, astute and perceptive reading and and often a very funny reading. I know John personally and 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 his his um, mordant sense of dry humor comes out on almost every page. I'll just uh, say one thing. Um, uh, uh, he, he opens it up with a very nice set piece. Um, uh, a very nice scene of, of visiting his parents in, in the suburbs of, of Washington with his brother. And I guess he grew up there and, and they used to be living next door, an old immigrant, uh, Eastern European, Russian, maybe Ukrainian couple that, uh, that, you know, according to, according to, uh, the leery the the gossip mill probably came from uh, a Ukrainian aristocracy, but they were old Europe. And John spent many uh, uh, a lovely afternoon eating hard candy in 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 the in the in their in their mahogany and 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 uh, and dark draped uh, living you know uh, meeting room dining room gathering and what what out. And recently he went back with his brother, and you know, that couple is gone. They were an older couple. And and a, a new Washington Power couple has moved in, and uh, and and uh, during some Christmas social social event, uh, you know, he probably seems to be, according to John, a lawyer somewhere downtown in Washington D.C. Asked his brother John the question, you know. So, do you follow politics? <laughs> and, and and from that word politics, John opens up this kind of whole world, uh, a semantic world in which we're which we're, which which we're tra- trapped into in many ways, which we're, we're imprisoned in. What politics means? And it's really a wonderful book. So I'll, I'll just I'll just John, who's who um who teaches in Philadelphia in a, a public school. He's also the author of a of a book on on Latin America on um uh, uh, uh cultural history of underdevelopment Latin America in the U.S. imagination and and the previous keyword book that I mentioned. So welcome, John. This is really a pleasure. And thank you, thank you for asking me to do this. Oh, thanks for doing it, Greg. Thanks for the kind introduction. Um, it's very flattering to be referred to as the Raymond Williams of our time. I don't know if I can live up to that, given that uh, I'm so heavily indebted to the Raymond Williams of the 70s, but thank you nonetheless. Um, yeah, the title of the book, I I also keep forgetting the the title of this. <laughs> of this I know, book. as I was getting ready, I was like, <laughs> wait, wait, which is which? Which was the one that came out? <laughs> I keep having to Google it. <laughs> so I, it's uh, for ease of, um, to, to make it easy for us and to be clear, I sometimes just, you know, keywords one and keywords two is how I've handed it to myself. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so thanks a lot again. So the uh, this book, yeah, I would say you, you started by talking about some of the differences. So maybe maybe we can begin with that. I mean, the 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 opening story about this kind of annoying neighbor of my parents who who asked asked my brother, and the thing that was particularly annoying about it to me at the time was that my brother was about the same age as this guy, and he said. You know, so he was like, so are you interested in politics? Like he was a precocious little kid and the kind of condescension um, was hard to distinguish from that um, banal understanding of what politics was. The sort of the thing that happens on TV or um, the the thing that sort of qualified and very smart people downtown in, in D.C. do. Um, and so the book is kind of divided into various sort of rejoinders or various ways of understanding that guy's meaning of politics and that question. So there, the book's divided into um, like kind of three categories of terms. And one is the horse race. So the words that we encounter in kind of electioneering and election coverage in basically mainstream news media discussion of you know the government basically and then um politics as a as the place of movements um in which average people participate uh, since the main different you know the the metaphor of the horse race is sort of an appropriate one for politics as it's conducted in official circles and on tv because the horse race is a sport in which like only a unique species can participate like we can't all we can do is watch, you know, we're not horses. So the, the movement chapter is about the, the time when we get to enter, as it were, the race. And then um, the last section uh, is structures. So the kinds of, I guess, the kinds of things that probably that neighbor would not have considered if, you know, we had answered him like, yeah, we're really interested in. The, the class question and uh, and racism and the place of materialism in contemporary American society those sorts of questions that one wouldn't really wouldn't wouldn't really compute with somebody who's sort of steeped in that horse race stuff yeah yeah I think we all have, have I mean leftists have all had that moment where you run into I mean this this person, seemed particularly obnoxious and the juxtaposition with the the uh, the loss of other kind of old world gentility no matter how probably odious their politics they probably were they probably fled the russian revolution <laughs> never discussed it so i can't remember. yeah but the, but that was, i for me i mean i have i have a i'm a nostalgist and a declinist so like you know the with you know the the loss of of that kind of old world uh and 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 and, and in in its place coming you know what has come is is uh is was was a very graphic image but we've all had trouble. I mean, we've all, I think, run into people that are interested. In, I mean, this person seemed particularly obnoxious and wanted to talk about politics as a horse race and, you know, as MSNBC, as, as, as you know, 538, as polling, as, as repeating conventional wisdom, as, you know, channeled through cable TV. But same five people. But, but you know, the, the, there is also a kind of, 
you know, and another another category of people who want to talk about politics that are generally liberal and progressive, but don't have the 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 apparatus to talk about, you know, to get beyond to break out of 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 that that miasma that 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 you capture so well. And I think that that's what your your book does. It gives people a kind of roadmap to to get out of the, you know, to break out of the MSNBC prison house, the prison. <laughs> like I, I didn't. And this is, I guess, one difference between, you know, keywords one and keywords. The sequel is the, you know, the first book was just about terms to avoid, basically. I mean, like all of them were evasions, as you said, like entrepreneurship and innovation are just ways of not saying what you should be saying or human capital is a way of not saying labor and um, leadership is just a way of not saying the boss, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but I didn't want to just sort of categorize all the like dumb things people say on MSNBC, you know, in part because it's easy and, um, but in part because, you know, those, the, the, you know, the dumb things people say on MSNBC can be kind of ways of getting to other things or ways of kind of reframing other questions. And so, um, you know, talking about the history of, say, like the, the term, I don't know, the term like the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> but this, this idea of like kitchen table issues. Um, is this kind of like banal term that you almost almost barely at this point, and this is kind of like the function of terms like this, you just don't even think about what it means or what it might mean when you hear it. You just it's it's a word that a term that we um are allowed to be complacent about. Yeah. And to just sort of have it roll off our, our backs. But when one digs into its history, it's sort of a more interesting history than you might think. And um, you know, it has a origin story is women from the American Association of University Women uh, coins it in like a focus group in Iowa before the primaries, uh, before the Dukakis election, the 88 or 87 or whatever primaries. And, um, you know, it's a way of trying to uh, leverage the attention of the Democratic Party to focus on um, home care, um, women's wages, um, elder care, and, and the sorts of uh, political issues that would have been categorized as like women's issues. And so what this woman's effort was to do was to kind of make it a central plank rather than a kind of marginal plank of the of the party and and it's now become you know a kind of marginal plank precisely from the overuse of the term kitchen table issues to just sort of refl- to just sort of suggest um you know all sorts of things like the 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 household metaphor for uh national finances you know it sometimes suggests that like when a politician will say like we have to balance our budget like your house balances its budget that sort of thing um, or it just refers to, to like important stuff and, and, and in the most general sense. Um, yeah. but so like sort of digging into that term kind of might, might, I, I hope anyway, help, help us sort of extract the meaningful core from all of the sort of bullshit it's been 
submerged in. Yeah, and it's also linked to, I mean, I'll, you know, the, it's one thing to talk about kitchen table interest, uh, you know, it, but 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 you know, kitchen table politics or cable kitchen table issues, but but if they're, you know, it, it's when they're linked to, you know, technocratic solutions that are you know part of the whole general switch to bipartisanship compromise you know a kind of you know a hollowing out of of a a new deal concept of redistribution i mean one could imagine kitchen table issues being you know national health care being you know including dental insurance in 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 uh in in you know in uh no but it was it was as you as you write it's part it's it's a you know, it's 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 the language of patriarchy. You know, kitchen table yeah. balancing yeah. the budget, home 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 economics one hundred and one applied to politics. So it's the it's the it's the kind of reinforcing and reimagining the patriarchy, but in this age of neo neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. So the the story, you know, the Dukakis like fails to you know go go anywhere with this with this term or with this concept. And then when Clinton tries to do his, uh, you know, health reform in 93 or whenever it was, uh, the famous ad of, now I'm forgetting her name, Louise and. Oh, Harry, Harry and. Harry and somebody, Harry and Louise. Somebody. You're talking about the healthcare. You're talking about the healthcare. Yeah, sorry, they, they're, they're sitting at the dinner table, at the kitchen table. Um, and the husband is kind of like aloof and oblivious and he's reading the paper, like ignoring his wife. And then she's reading the bill, like, and it's this like doorstop of a bill. And, you know, she's sort of, uh, comes out with all this kind of homespun wisdom about how oppressive it's going to be and how much it's going to ruin them. And they say, you know, and that, and that ad is kind of often credited with her galvanizing opposition to the, to this signature issue, like this fundamental issue of what was initially supposed to be a kitchen table issue, but now it's used to signify the kind of um, authority of the home and the kind of fortress of the home against intrusion of the welfare state or against the intrusion of like a collective, you know, enterprise of any kind, like. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, you know, certainly the New Deal Re, rebuilt and stabilized the patriarchal family and 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 the male's role in it, even even as it created opportunities in other ways for for for, for women. But but it's one thing to it's one thing to 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 restabilize the patriarchal family around a, around an economics of of however flawed economic redistribution as as opposed to restructuring reimagining the patriarchal family in an age in which you know the gutting of the welfare state and the and 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 the turn towards market solutions to to solve all problems and 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 the and the dominance of corporations and and uh and and all of the paperwork and bureaucracy and humiliation that goes with corporate rule. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was struck, I, I had no idea about this, and I guess once it, once I read it, it was like, oh yeah, of course. That uh, uh, Barack Obama used the word folk more than not folk, uh, folks plural, yeah, folks. 
folks more than any other president by I don't know if, I don't know if you I, you quant, I don't remember if you quantified it, but did, but it's something did, yeah. like orders of magnitude more than anyone else had ever sent folks. Yeah, so I mean, what, what so what was that? That's like so you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Again, like all of these words you could see in a Frank Capra New Deal movie, but you know, like they, they would have a completely different balance, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the one, the one argument, the reasonable argument in favor of folks. So, this is an example of where you know this book isn't just about naughty words that one should stop using, because you know, folks has a certain utility in English for addressing. A collective of yeah. we don't have a second person tortured some folks in his kind of in his kind of signature you know style of speaking uh, we tortured and and then he followed and, and then he followed it up with um, the the kind of um, a sort of scolding of you know leftist left wing critics not to be too sanctimonious about the tough job that those folks had done in Iraq. And so in the space of two sentences, he A, referred to torture victims as some folks, and then like also used folks to refer to their torturers. And so it was this kind of remarkable um, evasion of any kind of distinction between those two or responsibility and moral difference that might exist between tortures and their victims. And so for me, like besides just the grammatical utility of folks, the, the way that it becomes important in kind of political discourse and what, why it's, I think, a certain way, of, a good way of capturing a certain feature of Obama-style liberalism is that it it's supposed to conjure the sort of national cross-party consensus that basically denies the, or, or at least downplays the persistence of fundamental conflicts, like, you know, class conflict, racial conflict, conflict in the sort of literal sense of an imperial war in Iraq and all of the kind of violence that that conjured up. So it was a, in, in using, and his overuse of the word folks is I think kind of part of, is a rhetorical stick that re, was revelatory of a certain refusal to um, actually engage those very real conflicts and to sort of conjure this sort of phony consensus that is yeah. much harder, I think, now to believe in, even if, you know, Biden is, it's, is sort of desperately trying to keep its flame burning. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's it reminded me of you know Graham Greene and and our man Nirvana has that famous passage that there there exists two types of people in the world: the torturable and the untorturable. You know, there's two classes: you know, the torturable and the untorturable. And uh, and then he has a little he has a riff on that. You know, who's torturable and who's untorturable? And he said, you know them, you know them when you see them. You know, and and all of that stuff. And and yeah. uh, and and here, you know, I mean, not to make too much of it, but here, Obama is basically saying we're all torturable. I mean, if we're all folks. The, the folks are being tortured and the folks are doing the torturing then you know then like you know we're all we're all we're all part of the torturable class at this point rhetorical uh tick that all politicians a sort of fake populism that all politicians yeah. engage in, in yeah 
Well, um, you know, that also brings to, you know, the foreign policy dimensions of, uh, of a lot of a lot of this, you know, this, uh, um, I mean, you, for the most part, focus on capitalism as the context in which language is, is formed and fought over and contested and, 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 and deformed. Um, and, you know, and not, not to make, not to, not to make any kind of big analytical distinction between the two, but, you know, militarism has its own, uh, you know, this kind of endless war and constant warfare as, as this own, um, has has this own impact has its own impact on language you know there's a, there's an essay i'm not a big fan of Arthur Schlesinger jr but he does have this really wonderful essay at the end of the vietnam war about how you know the constant militarism of the united states by this point i think laos cambodia had been revealed and the full nature and extent of what the united states was doing i don't know maybe the church committee had had revealed it. i don't know but he talked about you know there's been a semantic collapse militarism has caused a semantic collapse that has disassociated words from their meanings you know and and uh and 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 uh and and it, it's just interesting. It doesn't make that much of it, but you know, when, when you think of the kind of kind of uh, world we live in of constant misinformation and hard to pin things down, uh, you know, the kind the kind of crisis of, of false news and, and misinformation, um, it's it's often not traced back to the history of 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 endless counterinsurgency and endless psychological warfare which has which has you know contributed to to the defamation of language to some degree but there is one in, i'm sorry go ahead. no no go ahead go ahead <laughs> no, there is I, this is all just to get to the one big example in the book and that you have that does make the connection and to some degree is filibuster you want to say a little bit about you know, the origins of the word filibuster and how it how it circles back from the foreign to the domestic yeah so filibuster um is a word that comes to at least our our language from from spanish from filibustero which is a, a word that was used to refer to kind of uh privateers or private um private military uh, operators in the Caribbean in the 19th century, and so the, the 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 greatest of them all, the most relatively successful, was William Walker, who was um, a Tennessean who formed a private army to invade and briefly occupy Nicaragua in 1850. I'm forgetting, maybe you know, 1852 or anyway, 1850s. Um, and he, um, with, you know, with backing from some Southern slave, uh, agriculture interests, he occupies the country, subdued briefly, you know, assumes the, um, assumes power there, reinstitutes slavery, or at least attempts to, um, before he's overthrown and summarily executed by United Central American Army and so in Central America, his name is pretty well known. I mean, and the the story is pretty well known because it's a sort of moment of of kind of a anti imperial heroism to to overthrow him and um, and execute him. But you know, he's not remembered 
here at all because this is like a you know the history of filibustering is not just William Walker. There's Narciso Lopez who goes to Cuba twice and fails twice. Um, so this kind of tradition um, or this history of mobilizing private armies to conquer uh, territory in Latin American Caribbean for the purposes of just brute exploitation and the purposes of, of instituting and expanding slavery is just like, you know, this is a, a fun, this is a major part of American foreign policy in, in the Americas in the 19th century that we don't really, that many people don't know about, I think in this country. And so it's, it, for me, what it's very interesting and it's, there is a kind of clear lineage from this kind of racist adventurism of uh, filibustering to the way that it, the term has become used in kind of legislative procedure in the United States as a way of mostly um, blocking civil rights legislation. So in the 30s and before in the Jim Crow era to filibuster is generally too, um, it's not worth getting into all the arcane kind of Senate rules about why you can do it, but to interrupt uh, legislation and on civil rights. It's like the, the kind of go-to policy for that. And then now it's kind of been, I guess, uh, expanded perhaps somewhat. It is not only used, although it is very much still used to um, disrupt civil rights legislation or legislation that has to do with racial justice, but it's also um, you know, late, like right now, invoked um, for abortion rights to, to block abortion rights or to to take them away, um, and and it's a just so it's an example of the the way of like a, one way in which the, this kind of history of racist violence and conquest in the 19th century sort of still haunts. Um, Haunts the present, you know, in uh, by kind of, but particularly in a you know in an interesting way now because it's the filibuster is we think of it I think we talk about it mostly as a sign of American just impotence and incompetence or failure you know right like in the current political context filibustering is just like a sign of what a what a fiasco American government has become but it has this it has this very kind of a aggressive and very deliberate and very kind of um, uh, focused campaign history, you know? Right. This militaristic campaign history. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a lot of ways, I think, with this, a lot of the language, the way language has been, has been, has been, has, I've incorporated, the, you know, the political word. And, um, you know, there was, there, you know, I, I, earlier on, I mentioned Raymond Williams and, but there's a long history of this kind of this kind of this kind of exposition, this kind of using language to you know get beyond what and and the other thing just more because I think he captured Raymond Williams. I think I think you carry on the best tradition of Raymond Williams in terms of his analytical abilities and and but there's another Ambrose Bias you know who wrote the devil devil you know he had his column in San Francisco <laughs> devil's dictionary and he was quite the critic of uh, of 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 capital and labor and 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 and, uh, and colonialism you know he would and he he himself saw language and as 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 a way of um as a as as mystification 
you know, as a way of, you know, like a, he, he put, you know, put out this, what he called the devil's dictionary, which we define. So labor, labor is one of his definition of labor is one of the processes by which A acquires property for B. And then he goes on to talk about land, a part of the earth's surface considered as property. The theory that land is property subject to private ownership is the foundation of modern society and eminently worthy of superstructure. Carried to its logical conclusion means that some have the right to prevent others from living. For the right to own implies implies for the right to own implies the right exclusively to occupy. And in fact, laws of trespass are enacted whenever property and land is recognized. It follows that if the whole area of terra firma is owned by A, B, and C, there will be no place for D, E, F, and G to be born or born as trespassers. I mean, it's kind of remarkable uh, entry considering that, you know, one, he's writing at the tail end of of, of Frederick Jackson Turner and the whole whole myth of the frontier. And and two, he's foreshadowing a whole class of people who will have no, no place to be. But anyway, I just wanted to also say that you would not just you you do not just invoke Raymond Williams in in analysis. You wrote you invoke <laughs> Ambrose Bias in his in his uh, uh, wit and humor. Oh well, thanks. It's uh, it's good company to be in. I'm a, yeah, I am a big fan of the Devil's Dictionary. I mean, it's um, it is kind of remarkable how kind of uh, you know I think the title is meant to refer to the kind of the the deeply kind of cynical sardonic um, vehemence of a lot of his definitions, like the one you just read, and like you know, one of my favorites is marriage. I can't remember his definition of it, but something for our listeners to look up. Well, one of my favorites is emancipation. This it's so Foucauldian. I mean, I'm not particular. I mean, I uh, but emancipation is. He defines it as a bondsman, a slave's change from the tyranny of another to the despotism of himself. He was a slave. At word he went and came, his iron collar cut him to the bone. Then liberty erased his own his name and tightened the rivets and inscribed his own. I mean, you know, it's, it's just about, the, you know, the, uh, it's hard to get something better about the way that we internalize self-discipline and, 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 and you know, minority via a process of abstract control and, 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 and self, self enslavement in some ways so anyway he, he was he was quite prescient in 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 uh, in, in many of his entre- entries into, you know, and i guess you know in, in a way that's like i don't quite share his uh i don't know writing style but his, <laughs> his, uh, conciseness i guess <laughs> either but um but there's something about you know his, i guess his general approach to language as something that on the one hand conceals and that we can kind of crack open what it and see what it conceals when it's a, when it's used as sort of like land or emancipation is to kind of promise something that it doesn't deliver or promise something that comes with a cat with a with a with a catch attached or with a you know and then um but that also we, but that also language is something which we, which we use um, in ways that kind of, uh, you know, sometimes undermine us, and sometimes, um, sometimes 
what things that we, in which which we use for um, for our own kind of political purposes. So not just like again, not just sort of like bad words that are pure deception or pure uh, mystification or pure evasion, but 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 concepts that we can't avoid, but which bear within it some kind of um, some kind of meaning. Um, which if we kind of drill down on it or access it can illuminate some aspect of our, of our political world, you know, like the land definition was a pretty good one, I think. Yeah. And that, you know, we can't avoid talking about it. We can't avoid walking on it. We can't avoid trespassing or buying or renting it. Um, and so so there's a, there's a material reality undergirding, undergirding this, that, that ultimately can't, and it's not all, I mean, you have that quote by Michael Denning, that if, uh, um, I mocked it, but now I can't find it. Populous. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. If if words, if politics were all words, we'd all be populists. Is that, is that some, is that the, let me give it to you exactly. I, I know what page it's on. Um, if language were politics, we would all be populists. Yeah. And so what, what can you maybe I, I speak a little bit more, more on that? Because that obviously, you know, there's a that that ha, that has, has had an enormous impact on politics in Latin America that I know the most of where where where, where you know, Laclau and, and Mouse hegemony and uh, a, a socialist strategy, the you know the really final break with the with the with discourse from a kind of material class politics in the final instance that it, that it is about uh, coming up with a kind of populist as, assemblage that somehow speaks to the people and you know and that was Chavez and that's the, you know that and and to a large degree that's been the that's been at least one of the one of the main uh, frameworks in which the revive the strength and weakness of the left in Latin America has 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 taken place in, but I take it that you, you I mean I take it that you see limits in that and that there is there are some connection there, you can't completely demor these words from from the material the materiality and class relations not materiality yeah. but the class there, relations yeah and and not just class relations, but all of the sort of social, I mean, in the broader sort of like ideological, all the kinds of social networks in which language takes shape, in which it's embedded, you know, racial, um, class, sexuality, and so on. I mean, I think what Denning is saying there, as I understand it, is to point to, yeah, the way in which um, if a kind of populist language that a politician um, or a pundit uses, like a kind of language of kind of democratic um, legitimacy or dropping your G's when you're speaking at a barbecue or, you know, riding a motorcycle during the like election to show that you're a salt of the earth regular guy, what all those sorts of things. If, um, all of these sort of like linguistic performances um, hide a material reality, right? I mean that they or that sometimes they articulate it and express it, and sometimes they are merely um, 
hiding it. And so the what I try to do in that particular, this is the folks chapter, you know, again, is to sort of talk about some of the ways in which this word like actually gets used and 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 some of those performances. Um, but also to talk about some of that kind of uh, material reality and sort of undergirds and gives shape to the term and also kind of like shows us um, some of some of what's wrong with it. So, I mean, the, you know, one of the example, one, of, one example is just the, 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 the torture regime um, that Obama's kind of sunny use of folks allowed us to, to, to not think about. Um, but then also the kind of the ways in which like folks and who counts as a, as a member of the folk, um, is in American history, always deeply embedded in racial and regional prejudice and, um, and, and, and class conflicts. So, you know, the, the real folks, who are invoked by the the, the, the politician's uh, rhetorical gesture, seemingly populist gesture to the folks is the real folks might be black industrial workers, but they might be white Southerners. They might yeah. be small town shopkeeper. They might be, you know, like who Sarah Palin was talking about when she long ago talked about real Americans or who Trump addresses when he's talking about my people. Um, so those kinds of meanings are very flexible um, but they're often kind of they're like as you were saying with the Obama example. I mean, there's often a kind of very sinister edge underneath it that you know we have to be kind of yeah. And I noticed that you didn't you didn't uh, uh, bring in reference to Volk. The you know you didn't. I mean, like the connection to. <laughs> Well, this is keywords in American English. Right? <laughs> the Volkish, the Volkish, the, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, it's not unrelated, the, the search for the, the, the pure, the, 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 the national subject that's pure. And, you know, obviously that that could that that is very elusive and, and adaptable and can change. I mean, you can have African-American fascists and Republicans. I mean, it, it, this, this is, a, you know, there is a, but anyway, that, that's a little bit off track. We've, you know, we've given a bunch of uh, Ambrose Bias's um, uh, uh, definitions, but maybe we can turn to a few of your favorite ones. And uh, also I want to say, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't get the final copy of the book. I got the galleys and, uh, but apparently the, the book is illustrated with, a, with a number of not, not, not the book I have, but the book is illustrated um, that, that you will get when you go out and buy it um, by Felicia Wolf. Is that right? And, yes, um, and did the, did these amazing illustrations for each, uh, for each entry and for a few sort of uh, things in between. Yeah. So apparently the, the, the lovely, um, the, the lovely and evocative um, uh, illustrations of each of different keywords. Um, what's, what's your favorite keyword? Uh, like my favorite entry. Yeah. Your favorite entry. Yeah. Right. One it's like choosing your favorite uh, child right now. Um, 
<laughs> People have them. Don't kill these favorite shots. Don't let them kid you. They have their favorite shots. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean maybe my favorite uh, illustration is the way to is the way to approach it. I mean, um, I think we have the her, Felicia's drawing for ideology is is uh, available. And we have a slide of it. The people behind the curtain to show us. So, um, so in the the entry on ideology, um, you know, which is a word. That, again, this is like a, a an example of a term that has a certain kind of, you know, stupid meaning in the sort of horse race um, media sphere, which you know is part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to sort of. Uh, address some of those some of that you know the the way we access politics in language like in social media in the media and in, in the written word wherever we encounter it um but it also has a a kind of rich history in european politics and marxist uh, theory spanning the globe so i try to sort of give a a really uh, brief sketch out, I think, the most important parts of that. Um, so, you know, ideology, the dumb meaning is just sort of like a bad idea or an extreme idea. So, like, when somebody wants to denounce their opponent's, um, you know, politics, they say, this, my opponent is guided by ideology, whereas I'm guided by common sense and data or something. You know, I mean, that's like sort of that kind of opposition is very common now. Like ideology is, is uh, unreasonable and irrational um, in one's own. Like one never has an ideology. It's always something you accuse someone else of having. Um, but Felicia's illustration here is a toad sitting on a mushroom in a garden. And it's a reference to uh, Stuart Hall, the critic, um, Jamaican British critic who uh, wrote an essay called "The Toad in the Garden" about um, about ideology and politics in Britain in the seventies and eighties. And so, what uh, briefly, like what he's talking about, um, you know, he defined he thinks about ideology as a set of mental frameworks, like the languages, the terms, concepts, the representations, like works of art, music films, media, um, slang, the way people talk, the way people interact, the way people dress, um, which classes and social groups use to make sense of the world and to understand the way society works. I mean, that's a sort of, I think, a pretty decent just definition of ideology. We could end, we could just end there. But um, the toad in the garden kind of metaphor, I think, captures one thing about um, a kind of certain Marxist tradition of ideology, which Hall was arguing with, which is to say that, um, you know, ideology is just as it were the superstructure, the ways in which um, the real determining factors that shape society, the, you know, what happens in the workplace, the factory, the economic conditions, the material, that is to say, like economic base of society. And ideology is just sort of like uh, the deceptions that come from kind of bourgeois media or bourgeois ideas, and then the kind of more correct um, or more militant, more 
pretty socialist ideas that one might get from a kind of more like proletarian media. I mean, so that's sort of like as a, a certain kind of Soviet like notion of what ideology was. And so he's trying to argue with this and to say that um, the ways in which like average people, you know, make sense of the world and come to understand how society works often complicates, contradicts, surprises, um, introduce new forms of struggle, new forms of reaction, as he was observing in Britain in the 80s, Dark Thatcher was coming, coming up. Um, and so the ways in which people um, make sense of the world, make sense of society often sort of complicates the theoretical models that we and that, you know, sort of theoreticians or kind of political theorists or political analysts bring to make sense of what's happening. And so we might have a pretty beautiful, well-ordered, well-tidy garden uh, to explain what um, what's happening. But there are these, <laughs> there are people, and there are their kind of vagaries and their um, and their surprises, and and they kind of come like a toad <laughs> to obstruct all the uh, all the the pretty well-ordered uh, theories that we have. Um, is, is, are, uh, are people seeing this image now? I, I, I don't see it on my screen. Is it being shown to the audience? Do we do we know? It is being shown to the audience, even though we don't we can't see it. Okay. And um, and so Felicia made a made a uh, little motif throughout the book of this of this toad, he became kind of, uh, for me and for, uh, our editor, John and, and for Felicia, this toad became sort of a, a fan favorite and is sort of a mascot of the book. Um, so, you know, for me, like what I like about it, I think is it, this goes back to, I think something you said in your introduction about, um, one of the purposes of the book is to sort of help build solidarity. I mean, because especially on the left, you know, historically, um, language is a language in the correct use and what, what are the proper things to call things is a source of great conflict. And often people kill each other over these kind of arguments. And so I wanted, what I wanted to do, and you know, and you see this in like a kind of, more petty form on like social media where people argue about like neoliberalism or people argue about like intersectionality and um, usually in sort of petty ways or trivial ways about what class means and what materialism means and why identity politics doesn't mean, uh, doesn't and like, isn't materialist or, you know, all sorts of kind of arguments like that. And I wanted to both introduce readers or, or sort of survey those some of those arguments to the degree that they're legitimate arguments. Um, but I was also really trying um, my best here to be kind of as generous as I can to, um, because, you know, the, the point of, say, a word like intersectionality, which has been so, I think, misapprehended by various kinds of people for various reasons is that it is about if you go to the, you know, the comedy river collective statement on identity politics, which I begin that essay with, and which is sort of a, 
um, major texts in the sort of history of this concept, uh, the the purpose is to restore a sense of the um, the the lived material reality of people who are marked in the United States as black women or as disabled people or as queer people um, and whose kind of way of inhabiting the world and of making sense of how the world works, you know, to go back to the ideology example, is indelibly shaped by that kind of material reality, which has very kind of tangible, physical, well, deeply felt effects on how you live your life. And so it is to, you know, to, to pay attention to these things is to sort of do a materialist analysis of, of uh, the class conflict in the United States today. And so what I wanted to, you know, I wanted to try to like work against the tendency, uh, especially talking about, you know, language and its meaning to sort of ascertain the right the right meaning or to sort of scold those who have used terms incorrectly or to, you know, to own my, <laughs> to own like people online and, or to, you know, to like work against that kind of, um, I think unconstructive, uh, like form of discourse and to instead, you know, give people a sort of a, some kind, not just a roadmap to all the sort of, dumb things that say on MSNBC, but some of the ways in which um, language might help be a roadmap to kind of building the alliances and building the kind of connections that like inevitably have to be made in a country like ours to do anything constructive. And so the toad, this, I started talking about this because of the toad, didn't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I like the toad as this sort of a uh, mischievous uh, figure who comes in and, you know, just sits there and you can't ignore him and you can't just toss him aside. And he messes with your kind of pretty mental models of how things are supposed to be, but you have to figure out a way to incorporate him into your, into your program. Like the frog and the toad. <laughs> and, and also it's a nice, uh, a nice subversion of an image that has been, you know, take commandeered by the right. Um, and, but yeah, anyway, so. I had to, before we came on uh, live, I had to explain to Greg the difference between a frog, like Pepe the frog and a, and a toad. <laughs> 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 something about water and <laughs> um anyway i think i think to go back to what you were just saying i think you would I, I think you've done a great job at doing that i mean i think it's a, a good it's a foundation to to help with with solidarity and 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 both to understand the linguistic stakes which are real and 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 to find common ground um and it's definitely a project that we should you know continue i mean it's it's uh it's it's the 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 the, the need to the need for unity obviously is is more urgent than ever and um and and i think your book does does a wonderful job at, at laying at least the beginnings of foundation for for kind of to find to find that kind of common ground in in in, in words and how to and, and a method for doing it also as well 
for other people to continue and for you to continue. So I'm with that. I think maybe, um, you know, I think we have a half an hour left and, uh, I'm, uh, uh, um, I guess we will, uh, maybe opening it up for questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is you could maybe give them the title of that essay. That, yes. Okay. This somebody wants to know the name of the Schlesinger essay. I don't remember. I cited it in. Uh, I cited it in that Kissinger's uh, shadow book. Because, uh, he uses it to. He, a big part of it is an anti. The big point of the essay is anti Kissinger. When he, so I, I can't remember the essay. I'll have to go. I'll have to look for it. Uh, but it's in Kissinger's shadow. Um, um, so there was a question about um, ideological assumptions. Um, okay, so the question, I'll just read it um, so that you can see it. Uh, you mentioned that definitions are very fraught, especially among socialists. Don't all definitions come with certain ideological assumptions? How do you handle the dilemma in the book? And um, yeah, I mean, absolutely they do. Uh, I think that's part of the, for me, that's part of the reason why I think um, why I wrote the book and why I'm interested in this kind of model of analysis is that how we name a problem or how we name a solution is uh, kind of determines much of how we respond and how how we how we kind of conceptualize the problem, how we formulate the solution. So, um, I guess I would answer the question with uh, socialism, which the questioner asks and um you know i so what i do there i mean there's a lot of different there are a lot of there are many arguments about the meaning of that word what what socialism is what it should be what real socialism is or what really existing socialism is or what it wasn't um so part of what i'm doing in the book is kind of just uh charting those i mean giving you know there's a certain kind of encyclopedic because I don't think it's quite as dry as that, but um, I'm trying to give people a kind of useful overview that they can, that they can use and a fair overview. Um, But the ideological, one of the kind of major conflicts in the history of the word socialism has to do with just the, in the word itself, like what is, what is the social that is referenced in that word socialism? Um, And there's like, you know, a couple at least of traditions of answering that question. One is to say that it is the kind of truest fulfillment of the the social compact of liberalism, like rights and obligations in a society that is a free society. Um, and then there's the kind of um, the definition of socialism that kind of come becomes more dominant after the Russian revolution that says that the liberal traditions embrace of property rights is a kind of insuperable obstacle to realizing a free society so that there's this conflict between these two kind of conceptions um and certain sort of socialists like big bill haywood uh, in the united states and eugene debs in the united states try to kind of thread this needle by talking about industrial democracy as a uh, form of socialist reorganization of the means of production of society that would also realize the kind of um, ideal 
of a free society whose government is of and by and for the people, as Debs said. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the ideological assumptions are kind of implicit in the, the word and the way one uses it. Um, and it, the point isn't to kind of resolve them or to kind of arrive at the, for me anyway, the point is not to resolve them or arrive at the correct, um, the correct meaning, but, but to make, I guess, make people aware of the kind of rain of the, the kind of capacity, the capaciousness of the concept of socialism and how much it can include and how much it has included. Um, so that, and I think when you look at like, say the example of Haywood and Debs, it's like, um, we can see how these kinds of, um, ideological assumptions that may be in conflict can also be kind of, um, can also be resolved and can be addressed, um, in a kind of spirit again of like, of, of, uh, you know, solidarity rather than, rather than viewing these kind of questions as like a fight to the death as we often do. Um, so, uh, do you want to take the next one about, about the, the the word tax eater, which I had, I've actually never heard before. I have. Uh, the question is, um, I had someone uses the someone used the word tax eater as an antonym to taxpayer. So tax eaters are people who consume taxes, and taxpayers are the ones who pay them. Um, yeah, taxpayer. I this it's a so basically the question is, what about taxpayer? Um, and that's a good one. I feel like I wrote about this somewhere, but not in here, not in this book. So um, I think it's a it's a it's a great word. I mean, not a great word, but a great word for me to forget because it's full of uh, it captures a lot about a kind of a certain I think neoliberal understanding of government. <laughs> and wealth is created and how it's distributed so when we you know when we when when a sort of a politician says like the, the taxpayers of this country won't stand for whatever expenditure or taxpayer dollars are being wasted on you know school lunch for kindergartners or whatever um you know what what we're doing we're we're kind of reverting to this sort of notion of a of a of a society as like a kind of a dollar store or convenience store in which <laughs> individuals pay their way and get what they've get out, what they, you know, get, get, get a commodity in exchange, which I guess is like membership in a society or something. Um, and it, so it, it treats every kind of, it, it understands every individual as a kind of a solitary autonomous individual whose wealth is their own, who's, who's, who is completely at liberty from any obligation to someone else, except to the degree that there's this sort of onerous debt you have to pay to, you know, maybe keep the roads paved and to uh, keep the military armed and so forth. So I, like the, 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 I guess the basic problem for me of taxpayers is that it, the way in which it sort of atomizes us all into these kind of like, um, service purchasing units rather than members of a society with shared obligations and rights. 
I don't know. Would you add anything, Greg, to that? Or do you agree? No, I mean, I was just thinking, uh, I mean, um, you know, Keynes is famous. Taxes are the price we pay for civilization, you know, and how and how um, just the, going back to the materiality of it all, how much of the t- taxes are, 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 are go to go to making war and destroying civilizations. It's, it's uh, you know, I think that all of the debates get, t- you know, take take place within within that bracketed context that's never never really discussed. Um, you know, uh, just this, I, 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 and I, this probably, I can't imagine another country in which the criticism of the hatred of taxes has, has, has such, has, even has such a legitimate foundation, but used for illegit, but for the most pernicious ends, right? I mean, you know, I mean, taxes, I mean, what do people get for paying taxes in this country? It's, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you don't get health. You don't get health care. You don't get. You don't get education. You get like an incredibly skewed, you know, elementary school education system. You get. You get. You know, a war machine that is that you know that is capable of fighting you know twelve wars that you know simultaneously. You know, but yeah, it's, you like know, a, it's like a dollar store, like a under, like a, like a. A dollar store where they don't have anything and somebody might shoot you at any moment from behind the from behind the counter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, somebody just said one German word for worker is work taker. Uh, yeah, work taker, Arbeitnehmer, an employer is work giver. Oh, wow, which is obviously very ideological, but Germans tend to just accept that. Uh, have you found in your foreign? Have you had, have you done any foreign language comparisons that that helps you to make English words strange? If so, do you have any any examples? I mean, I asked you about Volk and Folk earlier. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the one that comes to mind that I talk about here. I mean, I'm, there are I'm sure a lot, um, but the one that comes to mind right away is Pueblo and. And, and then Pueblo in French and Spanish, Spanish and French. Um, so I talk about people or the people in the American context um, and the way in which the American people, how they, how, what the American people means when we hear it spoken generally by you know, politicians to invoke a kind of uh, um, unified national community kind of in the way, you know, much like folks does. Um, and the way that, uh, Pueblo makes it, makes that word feel newly strange is the way in which, you know, in Spanish, it can refer to so many different kind of units of population. It can refer to a, a people in the sense of a nation, like the way that the American people does, or it can refer to a town and refer to an immigrant or it can refer to a part of a nation that is like the real part or the most deserving part or the, the, the part that has earned, you know, nationhood or um, has paid the price or whatever against another part of the Pueblo that is the exploiter or the elite. So, I mean, so the, the word um, in Spanish kind of made more clear to me um, how 
kind of empty and um, yeah, how often, how vacuous often the, the way which we invoke the American people is as a way of just sort of papering over all of these distinctions that we know are here and that we know exist. And we talk about them constantly, you know, how bitterly divided the American people are, how polarized we are. Um, but it's an example of, of the ways in which our language sort of uh, um, allows us to pretend that those divisions, at least for a moment, don't exist. So the Pueblo is a good example. And, um, well, and Pueblo and, and, and Quebec and juxtaposed to folk, there's less of a... Yeah. I mean, is it, I, mean I, I might not just be getting it, being an you know, a first language, English language, but there seems to be less, less of a sinister quality or potential to Pueblo than, yeah. than as to folk. Yeah. And, and also the, the people in the sense of, yeah, such, such a, so vested with nationalism. Yeah. And the national popular and yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like Pueblo is a, a, a kind of uh, fluctuating term as appropriate to a, to a place that is marked by borders that that is crossed by all kinds of competing allegiances and um, power blocks and so forth, um, which the United States also is, but we don't kind of we we like to think about the the, the national integrity of the United States as just like unimpeachable and, and you know um, yeah uncrossable. Going back to the example that the, that um, uh, the the question gave, I mean, work taker. Uh, it's very ideological, but for, for, to me, it sounds almost like more. I mean, to 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 because when you think about the language of the right, that you know, there's the takers and the makers. To actually call the employer the taker. Well, no, oh, no, no, no. The oh, German word for work is work taker. Yeah, so so work giver just sounds like a job, job. How is that even? Oh, they're taking work. I get it. The, the, the boss is a job creator and the worker is the person who's. But I guess, I guess technically it means they're. But, it, but I guess, I don't know. I don't speak German, but I, I, I guess it technically doesn't mean that, that they're being a taker. It means that they're taking a job. Yeah. Right. Seems related to the taker maker thing in the United right. States, since the, the, right, 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 right. the, right. the, the takers are the yeah. parasites. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so we have another question coming in over the wire here. Do we? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Lawson is following up. Uh, Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I do. The question is, so I talk about diversity, <laughs> equity, and inclusion. And in fact, I talk about all three. <laughs> um, I actually, I talk about diversity and inclusion and in one entry on inclusion um, and then equity in a separate, um, yeah, separate entry. So yeah, I'm grateful for this question actually, because we had talked about um, uh, covering these and I totally forgot about them. So yeah, diversity and inclusion. Um, I write about them in the, um, 
in the same entry because you know d the way in which they get used kind of by by people who like those terms and think that they're great um, or at least professionally are required to use those terms um, since that's one of the ways in which they circulate is as a kind of uh, human resources or um, you know definitely a university kind of bureaucracy jargon so you know they're in certain ways unavoidable for many people uh, inclusion I think is supposed to be sort of diversity put into action that's the way it's supposed to be how it's supposed to work so diversity is is a sort of ideal and inclusion is a way in which you at your organization um so what i talk about in the chapter is i mostly compare inclusion to a word that i think it kind of summons at least by uh kind of both lexically and also kind of historically, which is integration. Um, basically, you know, I think the idea, like integration, take the example from the U.S. civil rights movement. Regardless of whether you think this actually happened or not, um, the purpose, the sort of stated purpose, the ideal of integration, is that it would transform a racist society. Since if a, if a if a Southern Jim Crow society is sort of built around the fundamental presumption of, of white superiority and white supremacy, and its laws are sort of permeated by that assumption, um, integration would dramatically transform the terms in which the society worked. I mean, so you can argue whether that happened or not, but that's the that's the that's the idea, but inclusion kind of abandons, I think, a lot of that um, ambition, and it doesn't presume that there's anything fundamentally wrong or fundamentally, um, yeah, fundamentally wrong with an organization because we only really use it. We don't really use inclusion at the level of a society, but only at the level of a of a an institution. It it doesn't presume that there's anything sort of fundamentally wrong with the institution that needs to change. It's rather more people should be brought into the thing as it currently exists. So um, that's, I think, the kind of part about the word that should be, I think, uh, resisted, I think, um, because it, you know, because it's a, it's basically such a demobilizing term and it's, it's very flattering in that respect to whatever institution or whatever kind of uh, bureaucracy is promoting it because it's sort of saying, you know, it's absolving itself of really needing to change very much, except to just like add more people to this thing we have. And the example that I, that I give, it's a sort of extreme example, maybe, but, uh, but an outrageous one that I couldn't believe it when I read it was, uh, from the, um, from a little flyer produced by the CIA on, uh, Inclusion, diversity, inclusion, and equity at the CIA. <laughs> um, had all these little capsule biographies of various people who exemplified the CIA's commitment to inclusion. And there's one who is this white woman. Um, and the, 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 the brochure emphasizes that the picture may or may not actually be the person in question in the <laughs> I guess to so as not to reveal you know sensitive details about agents in the field, but she's a white woman in the picture, so I'm assuming that's what she is. And um, 
she talks about how, you know, she wasn't like some cosseted middle-class kid who went to a good college and grew up in the suburbs. She grew up in a, in a war zone. Um, and from a very early age, she had to learn to defend herself. You know, she drove a pickup truck with weapons and like learned to handle a salt rifle to fight against assailants and so on and so forth. Um, and so she like, is an example because she comes from this kind of like, I guess, unconventional for this firm, maybe for the U S government life background. But then, but, but then she explains at the end that she's a native of Rhodesia and that she grew up in Rhodesia in the seventies and eighties. And so I was like, okay, so you were like a gorilla, you were a, a soldier for an apartheid <laughs> regime and it was like the most i mean it, it was the most like uh i couldn't have like written a better yeah conclusion yeah. you know so equity maybe we can talk about that for a second because uh we have we have images all queued up i think um equity is a is a is a term that's also counterposed to another one, uh, which is equality. And briefly, you know, equality is it, it, if we're looking at this like illustration here um, of there's like three kids or three people watching a baseball game, and uh, there's a tall one who can see over the fence just fine, and then there's a sort of medium height one who stands on a like wooden pallet or something and he can see over the because of that he can see over the thing and then there's this other kid who just like can't see anything because he's too short and the idea is that this is um equal it's a quality if they're given all given the same size wooden pallet to stand on the short kid still can't see the middle kid now he can see, and then the tall guy can see even better. So I'm remembering the illustration right. So because I can't see it on the screen, but um, and that so the idea is that equality is just like this uniform um, standard that pays no mind to people's particular needs or merits or um, abilities, etc. And then equity, the idea is that everyone gets like the size box that they most need to see. <laughs> so this is supposed to be equity because everybody is given what they actually need. Um, now the idea, again, like for people who use these terms and believe in them, I think the idea is that equity is supposed to be a more sensitive and appropriate response to a situation of inequality. And, and it's interesting to me that no one ever says inequity, but people, you know, people still say inequality as the thing that you're trying to fix. Um, and that equality is just like this kind of uniform, like uh, standard, a kind of blunt instrument. And um, so in the, in the essay, what I do, what I talk about is that the fact that, first of all, that's not what equality necessarily means. I mean, there's just like this kind of, uh, it's become, the way that this image circulates and this definition circulates, it's like this assumption that this is the objective meaning of, of equality. And then what, um, what I argue about it is that, you know, 
the definition of equality as a as a as uniformity is basically a kind of conservative talking point. It's like what um, when Paul Ryan, you know, the that um, conservative congressman who sort of styled himself a intellectual, he liked to talk about uh, how the United States government needs to focus on uh, equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. Meaning that instead of just giving all these undeserving poor people stuff, right? That would be a quality of outcomes. You need to level the playing field, as we like to say, and make it possible for everyone to have the same opportunity. And that's kind of the idea of equity is that quality of opportunity concept. Um, and the, the kind of caricature of equality that you see in the sort of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion vocabulary, um, I think is kind of smuggling in this uh, kind of right-wing claim about uh, social equality as being about about a kind of wasteful expenditure on the undeserving or the un or you know if it's not that sinister perhaps it's it, it's at least about um, the idea that equality is sort of inefficient or ineffective um, giving people things is wasteful in the sense that it won't won't work or it'll be wasteful. It'll waste valuable taxpayer dollars and resources and so forth. So I talk about, um, I talk about it in those terms. And my other question, if we're still looking at the uh, equity cartoon, you know, the one with the baseball game, um, I always, I went, I really wanted to kind of follow through on the analogy and just sort of ask like what, who paid to get into the game here, you know? And like, how, <laughs> how do the people who are sitting in these comfortable seats relate to these freeloaders standing on boxes? Like, how does that figure in? I mean, there's a, and it's a, it's a serious question because what we are not talking about when we're, when we're kind of invoking diversity, inclusion, equity are the kind of, you know, structural determinants of people's access. What, who built the stadium, you know, how much do the tickets cost? How do you get in? Why are these guys excluded from going to the game? These are the kind of like big political questions that we don't ask when we are simply talking about being included in an institution as it currently is constructed as it currently exists. Yeah. Um, there's one more question. There's one more question. Uh, if you want to, uh, my We've been going for a while, close to wrapping up. Do we? Do you want to just speak on this? Uh, uh, we should. Yeah, but we just got to. We get the two minute notice from the people who are behind. People are running things behind the screen. Uh, do you want to just say something quickly about why you wanted to write this more? Uh, you know, uh, a more be. Or you felt the need to be more constructive. <laughs> Rather than, rather than just yeah. <laughs> one thing is I kind of ran out of uh, I ran out of stupid business words. I mean, I probably haven't actually, but I kind of ran out of my patience for you know reading the Harvard Business Review or whatever. Um, and yeah, and I just but uh, you could have you could have had a field day on. I mean, but you didn't. But the the Lang, the the Robin D'Angelo types. I mean, you know, like that. 
that yeah. must make your that must make your head explode. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I wanted like. Uh, uh, I know. No, it's not. I, I wanted to be conspiracy. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I just uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of debunking to to be done, but um, you know there's also a lot of building to be done, and you know the last book what I what I said was that you know just like using the right words won't you know bring about socialism or. Yeah, destroy the neoliberal hegemon. But uh, words are uh, words are part of their power and a part of how they operate and a part of how we come to think about how we might fight them. You know, and so we need to be able to name these problems and to name our name what um, the ways we're fighting against them. Yeah. It's still true that you know, coming to a more correct definition of socialism won't bring about socialism, but words are elements of the problems. They're elements of the struggles we're facing and fighting. So I, I guess I just wanted to. I like the struggle. I, li- I mean, just very quickly, there's a, there seems to be some kind of struggle over the legacy of George Carlin. George Carlin, who was very precise in his critique of language. You know, he had all of those skits about, you know, how language has changed and and whether he would have been, a, you know, because, but he also did have a he, he did have a weird libertarian streak. You know, would he have gone in the direction of Bill Mack? and been a complete asshole or would he have would he have been you and like because he did see he did see he did understand power and he did understand you know things for what they were in terms of class in terms of patriarchy in terms of the hatred of women in terms of you know what abortion meant and and uh so it it, you know there is that you you are working in this in this long tradition of uh of uh of uh of, of ideology critique which is really really wonderful Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.